This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. So we read this uh, from Romans uh, chapter 12 uh, and verse 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. So the authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of judgment to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why we pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in the one commandment. Love your neighbour as yourself. Last, love does no harm to a neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilment of the law. Thanks. No, I don't need that. Father, we just thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this challenge that Paul lays before us to live alongside the world, both in the world and honouring government and authority, but yet living differently. Lord, and I pray as we navigate through these verses that you'd help us to, in our context, 
and in our world to understand how we can live alongside the world for your glory and your gospel. Amen. In, uh, in the summer of t- uh, 2014, a guy who happened to be gay walked into a Belfast baker's. The owner happened to be Christian. And they asked for a cake. No problem, says the owner. Of course I'll serve you. He's not the sort of guy to discriminate or alienate on the grounds of sexuality. But then Gareth Lee, the gay guy, asked for a cake featuring the Sesame Street characters Ernie and Bert with the slogan, Support Gay Marriage. A political slogan advocating the change in the law in Northern Ireland to be iced on the cake. This offends the MacArthur's Christian conscience. And the, owner decline, and the order is declined by Daniel MacArthur. Asher's bakers then found themselves at the centre of an international storm as they were pursued to the courts by Mr. Lee and then censored and fined by the Equality, uh, Discrimination, Equality Commission for Discrimination. As we stand at the moment, it's, uh, they're still waiting to take the decision of the cake to the Supreme Court in London. I don't know who's heard of that. You, don't, you might have had all sorts of opinions. Did the baker, uh, Daniel MacArthur, did he, did he not give the guy a cake because he was gay? Did he say, well, you're a guy, I'm not serving you. I don't agree with homosexuality, I'm not serving you. In which case, that would have been against the law. That would have been illegal in Northern Ireland as it is in this country. You couldn't say, I can't give you a cake because you're gay. Or did he say, I can't give you a cake because your cake has got a political slogan that offends my Christian conscience? Was that an incitement to hatred? Or was that the free speech? What you think Daniel MacArthur should or should not have done is the question we're answering today. How do you live in a world that's hostile to Christianity? I want you to say to the person next to you, and say, what would you have done? What would you have done? <laughs> Come on, Josh. <laughs> okay. You're not going to sort that in a minute too. Let's have a show of hands. Let's have a show of hands. Thankfully, democracy doesn't decide ethics, but it's fun. Hands up if you did not given the guy a cake, whatever type of, whatever cake he wanted, you could say, we don't serve gays. Hands up if that's you. I did put it rather pejoratively, yes, I agree. <laughs> and so if you think, I'll make you a cake, but I wouldn't uh, do what Daniel MacArthur did, I wouldn't make you a cake with the slogan, support gay marriage. And if you'd have done that. A few of you, come on, you let the courage of your convictions go first. Hands up if you'd have said, it's only a cake, I would have baked him a cake, doesn't matter what it said on it. Ooh, okay. This is not, a, this is not an issue about gays, this is an issue about how do we navigate... How do we navigate a culture that is um, opposed to Christianity? Should we oppose it or should we approve? Should we speak up or say nothing? Should we placard and demonstrate or should we love and embrace? What are we to do here? It's not easy. It's not easy to know the answers. And actually, it feels like maybe these are new answers. If you're uh, uh, my age, I'm 57 coming up, frightening. Uh, if, if you're my age, then you can probably remember hints of a time called Christendom, where actually the state's values and the cultural values uh, of Britain represented broadly Christian values. And those kind of debates 
that you had in the, in the, in, out in the world now didn't take place. Certainly, if you roll back 70, 80, 90 years, that wasn't the case. But now we roll on culture, 70, 80 years in culture, which is massively quick, and we've got these hot-button issues. I could have chosen a load of them. I could have chosen, do you stand outside an abortion clinic? What do you do? What do you do with radical Islam? What do you do? What do you do with these situations? And, and it feels like these are new questions for us. And, and the truth is, they are new questions for Western Christianity. But the truth is, most Christians, most of the time, have had to answer these questions. They haven't lived in what's called Christendom, where the society's values represented church values. They haven't lived in that. Most times, Christians have lived on the margin. Here's a quote from a guy called Steve Timmer, who I like to quote. Um, it's a long one, but I thought it's interesting. We have become outsiders, just as Jesus was an outsider. We're on the margins of our culture because Jesus is marginalized by humanity. Jesus was crucified outside the city wall as the ultimate expression of marginalization. And to follow Jesus is to take up our cross daily and experience marginalization and hostility. Being on the margins is the normal Christian experience. Christendom, that sense of the world's values are lined up with ours, Christians' values, was the exception. Rather than assume that we should be well thought of in the media or in the public square, we need to regain the sense that anything other than persecution is an unexpected bonus. You love that one, don't you? Anything but persecution is an unexpected bonus. Naomi didn't know what I was preaching on, but it's, we drove in on the in the car this morning. She said she'd been reading. She follows a charity that supports uh, kind of uh, Christians in the Muslim world and uh, and persecuted Christians. And she basically said, in in the, in the world today, Christians are the most persecuted people. Christians have been crucified in in, in Iraq with fires underneath them. In China, Christians in house churches are being still arrested and put away. It's interesting that China will let you have capitalism, but it won't let you have Jesus. Around the world, persecution is the normal experience. Northern Nigeria, most persecuted place in the world. But yet, southern Nigeria is kind of a Christendom-type place. We live in a world that actually is increasingly hostile. When Paul wrote his letter to the Roman church in AD 57, all they were getting was a little bit of abuse. Seven years later, they were being burned at the stake. They were being burned and crucified and killed in the arena. In fact, when, when Paul was writing, a, a, a Roman writer called Sutanus says, Christianity is this new and dangerous superstition that must be stamped out. You hear guys today, don't you, saying, religion, Christianity, it's pernicious, it's awful, it's bad, stamp it out. Tacitus went further and said, Christians are notoriously depraved and detested by the whole human race. So at that time in 57, it was a little bit of pressure, a little bit of abuse. Seven years later, and I'm not saying that's coming here, please Lord, no. Seven years later, After a fire in Rome, near us, crucifying Christians, they've been torn apart by dogs. 
So what's Paul's answer to a culture that's hostile? Paul's answer is not to bunker down. It's not to huddle close and create tight-knit, loving communities of church that live in splendid isolation from the culture. No, Paul's encouragement in these verses is to radically engage with the world around it, but to love it, but not compromise. It's not an easy way to walk, to love but not compromise. You're either over harsh and unloving, or you're loving and you feel like you're compromised. How do you walk that path? It's not easy. Paul starts with an easy request. He says, pursue hospitality. Now, when you talk about hospitality, it can feel like, you know, corp- at worst, it's those corporate boxes. I'm trying, my football team doing well. I keep telling you, because I will keep telling you, well, they keep doing well. Uh, you know, and if you want to buy tickets, there's no tickets, but you can click hospitality tickets. That corporate hospitality. And now we can think of hospitality as a kind of executive boxes, corporate hospitality. Or we can actually, if you don't think of hospitality like that, you can think of hospitality as being inviting friends from church round for dinner. To be honest, if we do that, we might feel, yes, I'm practicing hospitality. But the truth is, we tend to invite the friends around for dinner that we like. Friends we get on with. Friends that are our sort of type of person. Jesus says, don't invite those people like that. He says, don't invite those people that don't invite you back. Those people that can't invite you back. Those people that won't invite you back. Paul says it this way. He says, do not be proud but we're willing to be associated with people of low position. Don't be conceited. He's saying when you practice hospitality, there's there's something more than I have a nice dinner with the Allens. You know, but you have a nice dinner with them. But actually, we should be having dinner with, uh, with, with strangers. That's literally what the word means. It means, it, it has, part of the word is zeno. Strangers, foreigners. It's hospitality is love for foreigners, love for outsiders. It means have, don't have xenophobia, scare, fear of outsiders, but invite outsiders into your home. That's what hospitality is. Paul's saying the first response to a hostile world is not to bunker down, but to invite them into your house. Invite those people that actually give you a hard time because you're a Christian from work, invite them to your house. That's what he's saying. It seems... Easy. But actually, Paul means it really, really. It doesn't mean, oh, it's a nice idea and we'll forget about it when we walk out of here. It means it really, really. Because actually, when he talks to Timothy, who's a young kind of trainee who's uh, become an elder in the church in Ephesus, he says about the qualities of elders, and we read it last week, elders should practice hospitality. He's not saying elders need to be good at doing beef stew for God first food, or that's a start. What he's saying is, Elders should model inviting strangers into their world. And that should be a model for the whole church culture. Jesus, friend of sinners. In a hostile world, friend of sinners. But Paul's just getting started. If you think, well, and that might be a challenge, I'll go home and concentrate on that. Actually, Paul has got a greater, more challenging, self-sacrificing agenda. Remember last week we talked about give, your, give yourselves as living sacrifices. He's on that same thing. He's pushing, how do you be, uh, live a self-sacrificing agenda with people that don't love you? He echoes the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Bless those who persecute you. Oh, Jesus, please. Bless and do not curse. Do not pay back evil those who do evil against you. If society is evil, 
then you want to feel like, I want to fight, I want to push against that. I want to do to them what they're doing to me. If they're doing bad stuff, we're going to push back. There is a religion that believes that, but it's not ours. You don't win the world. You don't change the culture by doing evil to evil. You don't, excuse me, change the culture by putting letter bombs through the doors of abortion clinic doctors. No. I know there's only a few, a little group, a slither that would do that. But some people think that's the response to the, uh, the horror of abortion. But Jesus is, Paul saying, and Jesus is saying, now you should love your neighbor. You should love those who persecute. You should love those who do evil. You should do good to them. What would be the appropriate response? Are we supposed to stand outside with placards? Are we supposed to say nothing? And just say, well, why don't you come around for dinner? It's a challenging one. What do you do? How do you navigate it? I think it's great that churches do pregnancy crisis or whatever you call it. What they're saying is maybe there's another way. Maybe there's another response to some vulnerable girl who's got herself pregnant and some guy who's washed his hands of her or her circumstances say, I don't want to have this. Or she's just using it or they're just using it, a form of birth control. And society just closes its eyes and says, well, it doesn't really matter. You know, it's over quickly. It's all done. No concern for the psychological scars. No concern for the, the, myth, uh, the thoughts, the, the sense of isolation, the sense of guilt. No thought for that. What should the church do? The church should have a thought for that. I heard a story of a lady uh, in this town who went to a, a church and she went to the front and she said, I've had an abortion. I'd like to be prayed for. And the person praying for her, I guess they were naive, said, I can't pray for you because you've sinned. But that's true. She had sinned. She had sinned. What do you do? What do you do? Just say it doesn't matter? But you have to love and care. I think they should have prayed for her. Of course they should. Of course they should. They should have reached out in love and counsel. But it's not straightforward, is it? It's not straightforward. Some of you are shocked that I've said she had sinned. <laughs> and some of you are shocked that they said, you know, well, we should pray for her. It's not easy. How do we live in a world like that? Paul says, no, you should do good. Do good. If in doubt, do good. I've had an abortion. Please come round to my house. Let's love you. Let's talk to you. Let's, let's, let's build a relationship. Let's knit you in community. Just to pray God bless and then go, perhaps more and even be enough. Paul's saying, practice hospitality. And actually, the reason why that is, is, is not just do that because it's the right thing to do, because responding to goodness, to evil with goodness is the way that God did it, the way that Jesus did it. Jesus says to us that we should, Paul says, do it so everyone can see. It's not saying do showy acts of goodness, showy acts of love to a broken world, but do acts of love and let the world see. There's a different culture. There's a different kingdom. Jesus says this, do not hide your light 
but set it on a stand. You give light to the whole house. In the same way, church, let your light shine before men and women that they may see your, say it, good deeds and become Christians. Peter writes in his letter the same thing. Same as Paul's writing here. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they're hostile, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Doing good is the right thing to do. And it's the gospel thing to do. Paul presses his point further in our response to how we do culture. He says, do not take revenge. Revenge was a massive thing in Roman culture. As I've said, I've been sinning and watching the Vikings box set. And at the moment, they're all gathering this massive army to take revenge on the, on the killers of Ragnar Lothbrok. And you're all looking like, what's he talking about? But the Vikings are all gathering to take revenge on the Brits who killed their king. And it's all about revenge. It's all about revenge. Revenge is the overwhelming, driving emotion. I think that's the the situation in Rome. If you read any Roman history or you know any Roman history, revenge was a driving motivation. Because in an honour and shame culture, revenge is all you can do when your honour is damaged. We don't have that, so we don't have that sense of of, of revenge. But revenge is this driving thing to say, I will pay back evil for evil. Now, you don't do that in church. We don't go around with blood vendettas in church. But I know churches where they do. Where they're after each other. Where they're out for each other. Where they fight for each other. Where power politics is the thing that drives the church. I don't believe we're there, God first, and thankfully we're not. But actually, more than that, when people are harsh and challenging to us, when we say, would you like to come to 321? We should love them, care for them, and not pay back their slight by saying, I'm having nothing to do with them. In a world that's increasingly moving from apathy to hatred... We're called not to revenge or jihad or holy war, but to holy love. If you're, this is uniquely Christian, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Paul is not calling the church in Rome to have a safety first attitude to culture or a bunker mentality. He's talking to have a loving engagement with culture. And I think for me, I wonder, what am I like? Do I have a bunker mentality? Are all my friends Christians? Is my safe world Christian? Am I scared to step out and make the conversation? So that's how we respond to individuals. We'll come back and tie that together again. But, but Paul also talks about how we should respond to governments. He says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. So if you don't like Donald Trump, God has instituted him. What? When the Tories are in government, God has allowed that. How can that be? (laughs) 
We're to positively engage with those in government. What? No, positively engage with those in government. You know, the, the, the line that's often quoted is, Christians are too good at telling the government what we're against. Not very good at telling the government what we're for. Sometimes you get little windows, little moments where it seems like government gets it. You get kind of on different, both sides of the party, the parties, they suddenly realize the impact of the thousands and thousands of hours of volunteering love and care and social justice that the church does. You call it big society or whatever you want to call it. That's what should happen. When Tertullian, who was, uh, came uh, 100, so, 100 years after uh, Paul, uh, when he was being persecuted, he said, but look at what the church is like. We do good. We do good. We're good citizens. We pay our taxes. Christians that fiddle their taxes, Christians that dodge their taxes, to, that le- use legal methods to avoid their taxes, are doing a sin. It's sin. It's just the same as all those other sexual sins that we get really cross about. But it's interestingly, we need to see God's sovereignty over government. God is the Lord. The whole message of Romans is that Jesus is the Lord. God's over government. So sometimes God allows bad government. You think, why? God allows bad government. If you remember earlier in the chapters of, of, of Romans, God says, and God gave them over. In other words, judgment was not just future before God's white throne or Jesus' great white throne. Sometimes judgment's now. God gives them over. He says, you can have what you want. We truly get the government we deserve. Or we stand and point at politicians and say, you are corrupt, why are they corrupt? Because you are. Because we are. Because the society we live in is corrupt. But yet, there's a sense where governing authorities where we never should fear. Jesus is on trial. And Pilate, the Roman governor, says to him, he says, don't you realize I've got authority? I've got power to release you or hand you over to be crucified. And Jesus says, what every Christian's response to authority is, you would have no power over me if it wasn't given to you by God. Adolf Hitler in power. Mao, Stalin. Think of the dictators. God has allowed that somehow. We think, what? But maybe there's judgment there. It says about Pharaoh in the time of the Exodus, it says, I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, that my name might be claimed in all the earth. Sometimes when evil rulers come, God's asking the question, let me show my power, let the people of God arise. When slave trade's happening, you know, two centuries back, the people of God should stand up and say, this isn't how it should be. When evil is there, it's for us to stand up and say, God, show your power. Bring an exodus. Bring freedom. Let freedom come. 
But Jesus always says that, so when kings and rulers come, he's never outmaneuvered or surprised. Sometimes, as I said, God uses even evil rulers to bring judgment. Paul says this, if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. He's going to die by a Roman ruler's sword. It's quite prophetic. It says, we are servants. They are God's servants, agents of judgment to bring punishment. So how do you navigate? When good rulers, what are they doing? Is it so easy to say good ruler, bad ruler? Sometimes bad rulers give chance for gospel to arise. I would say China, you know, whether economically bad or whatever, but China, there's no freedom. But yet under the ground, the church of God is arising. In the West, there's freedom. We're a little flabby, a little comfortable, a little safe. Which kind of world will you want to be in? I know which world I want to be in. But which kind of Christian do you want to be? Paul says it's necessary to submit to authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also a conscience. So why? That's why you pay taxes. They're God's servants who give full time to governing, give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe them taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. We shouldn't be the ones who criticise and pull down and, and, and moan about governments. We should be solution finders, not finger pointers. But what are we going to do if the government passes a law that's fundamentally opposed to Christianity? What are you going to do then? We just say we've got to obey governors. Paul, you think, you're a bit schizo. You're saying obey governors and then what, what are we going to do? We used this example in this very room some weeks back in Daniel 3, not, uh, 16. The, the, the ruling governor, Nebuchadnezzar, gives a rule and says, everybody's going to bow down to, me, to this statue of me that I've put up. That's the rule. Paul says you should respect governors and authorities. Meshach, Shadow, and Abednego, they said this. They, did, uh, they, they said, we are not bowing down. We're not bowing down. We talked about this. Don't bow down. Nebuchadnezzar, do, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. We're not bowing down. If, you th- if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God will serve, we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. Carrie Job, who's a great worship leader, profoundly wrote this. I think it's there. It's better to suffer than sin. Better to suffer than sin. You've got a choice in the world. Are you going to do what God says and suffer? Are you going to duck it and sin and be comfy? That's a huge question that Paul is asking. The passage is clear. If you live a Christian life of sacrifice and self-sacrifice and holy and pleasing to God, you might be blessed with wealth and comfort. You might. God can do that. But it's more likely that being a living sacrifice means you're going to be put yourself in harm's way in a world that's increasingly 
hostile to Jesus. We know this because that's how Jesus walked. He put himself in harm's way. The disciples are saying, don't go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill you. But it says, Jesus set his face like flint and unmoving. He said, I've come for this hour. Scary. Because I know what I'm doing. I'm going, oh, they're going to kill me. Hmm, I'm not interested. Oh, they might say no to my free to win invite. Hmm, I'm ducking. We're soft. We're very soft. Tim Chester says this. Oh, we, were, we, were, we were having curry. Tim doesn't talk very much, but he's very profound. So he's having curry and listening to a conversation between myself and a Zimbabwean guy. Zimbabwean guy is talking about how he shares the gospel using an app on his phone. He says, what I do, I ask people, are you interested in spiritual things? And whether they, 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 whether they say yes or no, I get out this app and say, oh, why do you answer some of these questions? And he gets, shows them the phone and they've got to press yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And then at the end, it comes with this, like, gospel video, depending on what you've said. Now, actually, I should have said, that's a really cool idea, isn't it? But I said, doesn't it feel a little bit forced and awkward? Tim put down his fork and said to me, Howard, sharing the gospel is always forced and awkward. Oh, my word. You mean they're never going to fall down on their faces in my kitchen floor and say, what must I do to be saved? That's never going to happen to me. They're never going to grab me and say, would you invite me to 321 because I want to become a Christian. It's never going to happen. Most of the time, in fact, all of the time, it's going to feel forced and awkward. Because bringing spiritual reality into a physical world always feels like a crunching gear change And he looked me in the eye and said, Howard, get used to it. Get used to it. It's going to be forced and awkward. People aren't going to like you. We live in AD 57 world where they think we're bad. Please, Lord, let AD 67 be a long time future. But it might come. And what are we going to do? Are we going to duck? Would we still be here secretly meeting in someone's basement or in a place somewhere out in the cold like they do in China if we're going to die for it? Some of you don't even come when it's free and you can come. You've got other agendas, other things to do, other things to pursue, but we're here, we are free to worship Jesus, but what about if we weren't? I think I'm preaching to myself, I think, oh! They take Jesus and they take him and they drag him before him and said, I would have power over you to crucify. He said, you've got no power over me unless it's been given to you from above. And so he says, fine, well, we'll crucify you then. He said, well, that's not the answer I'm looking for. <laughs> Let's take him and crucify him. So they strip him and they beat him and they mock him and they say, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Well, I am the son of God, but I'm staying up there. And as they're nailing him to the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I'd say, you horrible people! Go to hell! And I'd be justified, perhaps. But that is not the way that he does it. And when we break bread, 
We're saying, I share the broken body life. Don't come if you don't want to share it. Now, when you eat it, you're saying, Jesus, I need your life in me. Because I can't even say hi to my friends that I'm a Christian without you. How am I going to live a radical life poured out for you? I'm not going to. I think Paul saw this. We're finishing here. I'm quite excited, I'm sorry. Paul saw this. So what's happened is, Paul's a young guy. There's a, there's a guy called Stephen who's an amazing Christian who's living large. He's young and powerful and he's not scared about the opposition and they drag him in front of the court and he doesn't say, well, I'm sorry. You know, I just want to respect the ruling authorities. I'm sorry. He says, no. I want you to know that this big story, this big story that you're in is God's big story to bring Jesus to the, as the saviour of the world. And it says they gnash their teeth at him. Ah! They didn't say, thank you, what must I do to be saved? And they dragged him outside and there's a bunch of them saying they picked up stones to stone him and they said to Paul, here's their coat, here's my coat, here's my coat so I can get a good go. And Paul stood there and go, yeah, absolutely, stone him. Paul's a hostile guy. He's the angry guy, he's the one who's throwing the stones at you. He's the ones who are pursuing you in Jerusalem and Damascus to kill you. But God's got a different story. Because as Stephen's been stoned, how Christ-like, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I think those words must have reverberated around Paul's pre-Christian conscience. There's something radically powerful. There's something of another age in this person. How true. So what would Jesus have done if he'd gone into that? If he'd been the baker? Okay, let's play as a carpenter. That might work, actually. Um, guy comes in. He's homosexual or he's a filthy leper or whatever is unacceptable in your culture. He says, would you make me a table? What would you just do? He'd make him the table. What if he said, carve in it, God is dead? Would he have done it? That's the question that Daniel MacArthur's baker is answering, isn't it? That's the question that you've got to answer. I think he, what Jesus would have said to Mr. Gareth Lee when he came into his shop says, well, I can't bake your cake, but why don't you come around for dinner? Iman from the local mosque. I don't agree with you, but why don't you come for dinner? I love that little advert from the Amazon. Cheesy as anything. Amazon will do anything to get you to buy things. But there's a, there's a connection. But would I say to... Oh, what about the, the abortion doctor who lives next door? She says, I'm in gynecology. That's what I do. But that's what she's doing. You find out. She don't know her anymore. She's your friend anymore. Now Paul says, invite her around for dinner. Be her friend. 
But when she says, could I put my Marie Stopes leaflets out in your welcome pack? We say no. When the imam says, could I come and read uh, Sirah 19 from the Quran, which says, Allah does not beget, nor is he begotten, which denies the divinity of Christ. Would I let him come and read that of God first? No. Actually, that's what happened in, a, in Glasgow. They had a multi-faith service. The Christians lovingly invite the Muslims. They say to Muslims, choose a reading. The Muslims choose a, choose a reading that says, God has no son. They know where they stand. We wouldn't invite them. But they should be our friends. Let's finish with this thought. We've told ourselves, haven't we, too often, I've told myself too often, that the gospel's harder these days, that, that society's more hostile these days, that, that people are, are less interested these days. I've looked around at the wealthy houses in Cheltenham and thought, people have got what they need. They don't feel that they need Jesus that the gospel's going to really struggle to work into one of those big houses. And I've told myself lies. I've told myself lies because what I've done is I've robbed myself of faith. That even in the midst of apathy, even in the midst of hostility, the gospel still works. That was what the words were this morning. I'm finishing here, Ben, you need to come back. That, but, but that's what the words were this morning. God has done something. He's lit these candles in your life. That's what Naomi said, that even though you were dead in transgressions and sins, the gospel broke in. So that means, people, it can do it elsewhere. The gospel in one generation went from Jerusalem through all the whole known world in one generation. And that culture hated Christians. But Christians lived large and bold and sacrificial lives. And I'm preaching it to myself. That's what we're called to do. While the sun shines and there's religious freedom, How are we going to live? How are we going to live if persecution comes? How are we going to live if challenge comes? How are we going to live if it's sin or suffer? We need Jesus. We need Jesus. We need to be aware that there's awkward moments. But Jesus faced the awkward moments and said, Come. What I like about Paul is that he doesn't spare you, does he? But Jesus says, no, come on. He says, I am with you always to the end of the age. He doesn't say, I'm sending you out into the world and you're going to get chewed up and spat out. He says, no, I'm the king on the throne. My gospel still works. Lives are still transformed. My spirit is with you. Come, and let's change the world together. So as we break bread, I just want to invite you, if you're not a Christian, you need to decide what you think about Jesus.
And sometimes the appeal says, well, if you come to Jesus, all your problems are going to go away. Some of them are going to go away. But you're going to get another set. You're going to have to live counterculturally in a world that doesn't care, in a world that hates Jesus. You're going to have to choose the margin. You have to choose to take up your, take up your cross and go with him, as, Paul said, as the writer of the Hebrews says, outside the city wall, outside the camp. If you want popularity and fame and an easy life, this is not the meal for you. But it's the meal for all of you. Because Jesus wants to call us into it. We might start with hospitality. But let's start somewhere. Let's stand and worship Jesus. This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.